0: Yeah. For God has not given us a spirit of bondage again to fear, but the spirit of adoption or sonship, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We are heirs together and joint heirs with Christ. Come on, somebody. Aren't you thankful that you're his child? He's your father. Stay, Remain standing for just a moment, if you would, please, as the praise team is dismissed. I want to go ahead and grab our text today, starting a brand new series, the book of Nehemiah. It's called Arise and Build. And... Uh, Quickly today, I want to jump, go ahead and jump in, and let's grab the title of the message. It's called The Birth of the Vision, and our text is Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. This one is used across the board, not only in spiritual settings, but in secular meetings for motivational purposes. This is probably the most overused scripture. Now, the version you're looking at, you don't recognize it, and I did that on purpose. The one that you would recognize says it this way. Where there is no vision, the people what? Perish. And we stop right there. We don't ever read the second part of the verse. So where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he, is what it says. But here it goes in the NLT, the New Living Translation. I want everybody to read this one out loud with me. Here we go. When people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. But whoever obeys the law is joyful. So the one you've heard all your life, Where there is no vision, the people perish. When people do not accept divine guidance, the people perish, they run wild. Well, you die because you're running wild, okay? Um, Let's pray, and then I'm going to build on this. Father, thank you today for this word. Thank you, Lord, for amazing worship. Lord, thank you for the presence of the Holy Spirit in this place. Thank you, Jesus, for your broken body and shed blood. Thank you for the renewal of the covenant. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you that we love you because you first loved us. Had it not been in that order, it wouldn't have been possible. Thank you, Lord, that you reached first. You made the first move. God, I ask you today, not going through the motions, but I say this intentionally every time from my heart to remind myself and to this people. I say, Lord, I'm utterly dependent upon you. Apart from you, I can do nothing. But God, I ask you today by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would be my words and my voice, Lord, that you would bring your thoughts to bear in my thinking, Lord, that you would be the ears of the people and listen, Holy Spirit, be alert, make us awake, wake us up, Lord, to what you're saying, what you're doing in this time in the earth, Lord, in our families, in my individual life, all of our lives, Lord, in the Delta, in the United States, God, we just stop right now. We pray for our president, for our Congress, our Supreme Court, all the leaders. We ask you by the power of the Holy Spirit to grant them wisdom. Lord, they need all the help they can get. And we ask you out of honor for them and for the office. Lord, whether we voted for him or not, we pray for your blessing and wisdom and guidance to be upon them. We ask you for this in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning in the presence of the Lord. When people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. But whoever obeys the law is joyful. King James, this is the one you've heard, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law happy is he. I'm going to give you two more because this is just good to kind of break it down and chew on it a little bit. The NIV, the New International Version, says, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. But blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. Let me stop giving an illustration, kind of help break this open. Until you catch a vision to get out of debt and get your finances in order, you cast off restraint, and you every Macy's day, one-day sale that comes in the mail, you ready, already going over there, got to have that dress. And baby needs some new shoes. Maybe it's not Macy's. Maybe it's Bass Pro Shop for your brothers and you... And you need that new shotgun, oh, I, mean, I can speak in tongues, because I move my hallelujah, man. Or maybe it's a set of golf clubs, or maybe it's the newest model of the car, or whatever. In other words, until you catch a vision to get out of debt, you'll, you'll run wild, you'll cast off restraint until you have a revelation that you can be debt free. And is that helping somebody this morning? So whatever your vision is, whatever, until without a vision, where there is no vision, the people cast off restraint. They run wild. The people perish. So it's starting to make sense now. Now listen to the message. I love this because it really opens up like a flower that blooms out in this one. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what He reveals, they are most blessed. Now, until you get a picture of what God is wanting to do in your life and you understand that even the steps that you're going through right now, circumstances that you may not like, probably don't agree with, didn't ask for, until you're willing to say, God, give me your perspective on this because I sure don't understand it from my vantage point, until you can begin to get a, a clue as to what's doing, you'll stumble all over yourself. But when you open your heart for God to reveal, everybody say reveal, one of the translations says where there's no revelation, people cast off restraint, where God will reveal to you and show you something and then you just not go, okay, that's cool, but you get up and you say, okay, I'm going to take action based on what he revealed. It says, but when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. How many of you want to be blessed? Help us, Holy Spirit, to not stumble all over ourselves. One thing that I want to communicate today through this message, that by the help of the Holy Spirit, God, I ask you for precision to be precise, but more than that, to help me be concise. Help me in Jesus' name. One thing. Find a screen, read it out loud. Here we go. This is the one thing. When we open our hearts to God, He opens our eyes to His. I want you to think about that. We're going to have to say it again. When we open our hearts to God, He opens our eyes to His. Turn to a person on either side of you. Tell them right now. Say, when you open your heart to God... He opens your eyes to His. Somebody said, "Why, why do you guys, y'all, are so repetitious around here? It just kind of wears me out." You know, my old church, we'd just sing the verse one time and move on. Well, you didn't get it, did you? <laughs> you know, when you were preschool, kindergarten, first grade, whenever it was, even when you went, when I was when I went started school, they didn't even have kindergarten. Was just something only a few really rich kids did. They didn't have kindergartens. I just started first grade. And when I started first grade, I already knew my ABCs and how to write them and and how to count and all my colors and my shapes and all that because my parents knew that it was their job to get me ready. That's a whole different message that I didn't even have, and I'm not going to chase that rabbit this morning. (laughs) But my whole point is, is that how did I learn the ABCs? I sat on my mom's lap, and she said it over and over and over and I didn't even have Sesame Street to watch when I was a kid. That's how old I am. Because that's been around here since the dark ages. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, a pimento cheese. I always loved to eat when I was a kid and make something about food. <laughs> Actually, that's my wife's joke. That's the way she said it growing up. So, you know, we're one and that's just it's become my joke. You have no doubt in your mind where L-M-N-O-P belongs in that 26-letter alphabet, do you? Can anybody challenge that? Can they make you doubt the veracity of where those letters belong? Why? Because why? Answer me. Because you know it. How do you know it? Because you've done it over and over and over again. Why do you think we stand up here and sing, I'm no longer a slave to fear? Because all week long you've been slaving to fear. Because all week long you've been scared to death. Why are we so positive? Because all week long you've been doing the negative self-talk, driving down the highway and looking and just going, man, I'm blowing it with these kids. God, I'm just a mess. God, I'm a wreck. Ladies, you're putting on your makeup going, man, my job is just awful. I I can't get along with these people and and I'm failing at my marriage. And and you're telling yourself negative self-talk over and over and over and over and over. I'm already preaching. Come on. And, And what you need is not just to be positive for the sake of being positive. But to get some divine Holy Ghost interjection into that positive determination and begin to speak faith and not just positivity, and you begin to say the words of God over your life, and you begin to get a picture of what God thinks about you based on what God says about you, you are not a slave to anything. You're a child of God. Well, how can I know that? Well, you tell yourself over and over. You've had an experience, you've met him. Sometimes you don't feel like it because you forget that experience you had. Well, you have to be reminded and so you hear it again and you hear it again. Paul the Apostle said, for me to say the same things to you, it's not grievous and for you it's safe. In other words, I'm going to repeat myself. Somebody said, you're related to the Apostle Paul because he wrote in the third chapter, finally my brethren and he wrote two more chapters. Closing the book. (laughs) That's a rabbit, and I chased it. Help me, Holy Ghost, to be concise. (laughs) All right, I'm gonna get focused. I get up here and I get to having a good time, and then it's just like the rabbits are having rabbits. So, when we open our hearts to God, He opens His eyes to His, our eyes to His. We we catch a glimpse of His heart. Number one, I want to move quickly. Your Chapter, point number one, Nehemiah, arise and build. Now this will come into view literally in chapter two when he says these words, let us arise and build. And so I use Proverbs twenty nine eighteen today to start to say that God wants to birth a vision in you. I want you to see how God will birth the vision for your life individually, for your family, for your home, maybe for a business, a need in the community, this church, your part being on a team here in this church. Maybe God inspires and drops a thought into your heart and you actually start and lay the groundwork for a fresh ministry we've never even thought of here before. We're, we're wide open to that because it's not just a couple of us. This is a whole big team and we, never, we need everybody on team. Look at neighbor and say, get up. Your chapter is part of a larger story. Your chapter is part of a larger story. Every one of you in this room have been born into a family with a history with a heritage. Parents have left a legacy. Grandparents have influenced and infected, affected, sometimes they've infected your life, like I started to say, <laughs> some negative stuff that we have to wrestle down. Everybody in the room has got a little bit. But for the most part, I'm grateful for a very strong, positive affect and influence in my life. And, I, and if we're really honest, every one of us were born into a family that at times we didn't ask, we would say, you know what, I didn't ask to be born in this family. Going, God, what? I don't know what you had in mind because it's sure not my plan. These people are just messed up. And you're right in the middle of it. Okay, so you've got to realize this part, you, you own this stuff. Amen. I remember as a smart mouth teenager about 15 years old, I got, was aggravated at my dad and I really spoke out in anger one day. And dad wasn't so quick in his older years, but he was anointed to be quick that day. <laughs> when I said, I didn't ask to be born into this family. And he said, no, and if you had, out, I told you no. That's the truth. (laughs) Kind of parted my hair. Your chapter is part of a larger story. You are a product. You are where you are in your life today because of the decisions you made yesterday and the influence of your parents the day before that and your grandparents on your parents and down through the generations. You just have to face reality and see what it is. Your, your chapter is part of a larger story. There are positive aspects to that and there are negative aspects to that. And we just have to be a, get a good assessment and go, God, this is where I am. This is who I am. I'm amazed that you can use me. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. Your chapter is part of a larger story. Nehemiah chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's just 11 verses. It's quick. And it will set the stage for everything that I'm going to share following. These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes' reign. Everybody say, the Persian Empire. I was at the fortress of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came to visit me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. They said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. Everybody say, great trouble and disgrace. So here comes a friend with a message. You know, you might call it gossip. This is kind of how things are going, whatever. And it's not good news. He says, it's trouble and disgrace. He says, the wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Now, let me just stop right here at this point and let me just say to you, Nehemiah is going to rebuild a wall. I, just for record's sake, wanted to be known that this is in no way a political endorsement of any candidate's desire to build a wall anywhere. Uh, somebody said, oh, I didn't even think about it. Yeah, I guarantee you somebody will, and I get an email over it, okay? I don't know whether you like the current one. I don't know whether you voted for him or not. It doesn't matter. He is your president. Whether you want to call him not my president or not, he is. And let me just tell you, God is still God while Trump is in office. He, is, he was still God when Obama was in office. He was still God when Bush was in office. He was still God when Clinton was in office. And sometimes in spite of what all those characters did every time, he was God in spite of them. He was God when Reagan was in office. He was God when George Washington was in office. And what I want you to see is that even in that respect, every one of those guys' chapters is part of a larger story. And in the long arc of history, it's important that we know where we've come from and we know where we're headed And so in the interest of this, I want you to know that that victory is not one of those churches where we're going to push or promote any particular political idea because our salvation is not in any political party. It's not in any man you can vote for, but it's in the hope of revival and the hope of reformation of a culture that bows its knee and says, Jesus Christ is Lord. When I heard this, he says in verse 4, Walls are torn down, the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned. I fasted, I prayed to the God of heaven. But verse 5, he turns a corner. Then I said, Everybody say, Then I said, O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. I love that. Of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands. Verse 6, listen to my prayer, look down and see my praying. See me praying day and night and day for your people Israel. I confess, say those two words, I confess that we, notice how he changes his pronouns, I confess that we have sinned. He didn't just say, Lord, I confess that my people are a mess. They they jacked up, God. They're a mess and they've sinned. Lord, look at all their sin. He's not just pointing the finger. He raises his hands in humility and he says, I confess that we, He owns it. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. Seven, we have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, the decrees, the regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Verse 8, everybody say remember. I love it. Remember your covenant. Remember your promises. Remember your servant. God is not forgetful. He hasn't mislocated anything. He doesn't lose his keys the way we do. My son gave me an Apple Watch for my birthday, and I love it because I can push a button and it will ping my phone. Now, if any of you knew how important that was to me, then you would realize what a blessing it is that I can ping my phone and I go walking through my house listening for the ding because that tells me where my phone is that I've misplaced because I forgot. God doesn't forget. Everybody say, remember. But he loves it when we remind him. When we remind him of what he said. He says, please remember what you told your servant Moses. If. Everybody say, if. If you are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if. (laughs) Ooh, I feel a T.D. Jakes anointing coming on me. But if. I need Ben over here on giving me a right cord on the hammond behind me. But if. (laughs) You return to me and obey my commands and live by them. Then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. Everybody say, if you, you, then I. I. We're going to repeat this. Say it like you mean it. "If If you, then I. Now, who's talking? God is talking. He says, if you will, then I will. I don't know what your circumstances entail this morning or the mess that you're facing, but God is saying, if you will, then I will. Now, I'm going to tell you, I could say amen right now and sit down and go home and rest because that's the the spirit and the body of the message right now. If you will, God says, then what? Then I will. And so when we pray, we remind God of His promises and of His covenant-keeping nature. And He says, remember, God, what you promised Moses, but if, then I will. Verse 10, the people you rescued by your great power and strong hand of your servants. O Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success. I'm going to slap the person that tells you it's wrong to ask God for you to win. I mean, it's in the Bible for you to pray for success. Now, you know, if you're just materialistic and that's how your whole focus, then God's not going to bless that. But when you have a heart, when you've opened your heart to God, what's our one thing? Say it. When we open our hearts to God, He opens our eyes to His. I open my heart, He opens my eyes so I can see His heart. So I'm saying, God, grant me success. Bless my hands what I pray to do. And he says, grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart. I love it. See, it doesn't matter whether there's a Democrat or a Republican or Independent in the White House. Because the Bible says in Proverbs 21, the Lord's hand turns the heart of the king. Whithersoever he will, even as he turns the water courses of the river. You know, God God can jerk a knot in anybody's tail up there, whether it's him or her whoever it is or might be. And it says, put it into his heart. How many of you know you can pray over a rebel and you can say, God, put it into his heart. (laughs) Some of you got some children that are not walking with the Lord and you need to pray, God, put it into her heart. Put it into his heart. Lord, to cry out to you. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. He says, in those days, I was the king's cupbearer. So we want to ask some questions this morning. Who who was Nehemiah? Nehemiah's name literally means comforted by Yahweh or the comfort of Jehovah. Those are the the same derivatives. One is an English derivative, Jehovah, of Yahweh. The Hebrew Hebrew pronunciation is the real one. Okay, And so his name, Nehemiah, means comforted by Yahweh. Now, Nehemiah is not a prophet. He's a cupbearer. He's He's a government official. He's working down at the office. He's—he's. I wouldn't call him a bureaucrat, but he's working for the king. He's a Persian king. He's not a Jewish king. He's He's a heathen pagan king who's not worshiping the God of Israel. But Nehemiah is a faithful Jew who loves God, who loves his people, who loves his history and his heritage. And he finds himself in the fortress of Susa in the Persian Empire under the leadership of Artaxerxes, which was one of the sons of Darius the king. Persians had overtaken the Babylonians, and I want to give you some history in a minute. Before I do, Nehemiah and Nahum. Nahum was a prophet. They those those their names mean the same thing. Nahum is short for Nehemiah. It's like Michael is Nehemiah, Mike is Nahum. Okay, so both of these guys they mean comfort comforter, and so it's a picture of the comforter. Who is the comforter? Somebody tell me. Well, Jesus is our original comforter, but he says, I'm going to send you another comforter, which is who? The Holy Spirit. So really the primary comforter that we know in the church is the work of the Holy Spirit. So Nehemiah is going to give me a picture of what the Holy Spirit will do in my life when he says, arise and build, catch a vision, get a birth of a vision in your life, open your heart to me. When, when you open your heart to me, I will open your eyes to my heart, the Lord says. So Nehemiah means comforted by Yahweh. He's a young, faithful Jew serving in the court of a pagan king. And let me tell you how he got there. Um, We've got a history that we want to go back and see if I can give you a timeline. God speaks to Abraham, makes him some promises. He's going to make a whole nation out of him. 400 years later, their family wakes up. They've been uh, slaves in Egypt and so God raises up a deliverer. Moses brings them out by the blood, water, and the Spirit. They wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses dies, doesn't take a man. Joshua is the young man, the young warrior. Moses was a shepherd. Joshua was a warrior. And so God raises up a warrior in the next generation because every one of them, their chapter is part of a larger story. God raises up Joshua. He takes the people out of the wilderness into the promised land. They all have land that they now begin to possess. They're rooting out all of the enemies. God warns them, be truthful, be faithful to me, walk in my covenant. If you will, then I will bless you. If you don't, I will drive you out of this land and disinherit you. Joshua dies. We see the age of the judges emerge, and we read about people like Deborah, a judge in Israel, Like Samson, these old old Bible stories you learned back in Bible school or maybe Sunday school in your children's classes. Gideon, God raised up to help defeat the Midianites. Every one of them usually ruled for about 40 years, interestingly enough. Too many times their sons wouldn't follow after them in their footsteps. Maybe the second generation were sort of nominal, then by the third they were just all out running wild because they'd lost the vision. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Where people don't accept divine guidance, they run wild. People who can't see what God is doing stumble all over themselves. And so we see the, the, the history of the judges. They're rolling through and, and, and they walk away from God and God sends in a, a heathen nation to bring them into captivity, steals their product and their good and their food, and they cry out to God and they pray and God raises up a judge. And then here we go, the cycle of revival and then declension continues. Revival At the peak, and they begin to descend into sin again and declension. Then they cry out and pray, and then here comes a judge, and God sends revival. And boom, it's just like a cyclical, stuck-in-a-rut kind of a routine. God raises up Samuel, the first prophet. They cry out to him and said, we want a king. God raises up Saul, the first king. That's a huge mistake. He reigns 40 years. David comes in his place. He reigns 40 years. He dies. Solomon reigns 40 years. And then the kingdom is split kingdom is split between the two sons, I'm sorry, the one son of Solomon, Rehoboam, and the general of the Israelite army, Jeroboam. Rehoboam is Solomon's son. He's set to be the king. And folks are upset because Solomon has just literally drained them after building this massive temple. And so the kingdom gets split. Can't go any deeper in the history than that right there. We've got ten tribes to the north, Israel, which becomes known as Samaria. So when you read in the New Testament, the woman of Samaria, she was from Israel. They didn't stay true to God. They had a mixture. Immediately went into serving other false gods, worshiping at the altars of Baal, at Ashtoreth, eventually at Molech where they would sacrifice their newborn babies into the mouth of this big, huge furnace uh, god, which is no different than abortion today in America where over 50 million Americans have died because they've been thrown into the fires of Molech. Fires of saline solution and extraction out of the womb. The others were sex gods. It was a sex cult. Baal, Ashtoreth, all kinds of acts of perversion were at the center and the source of that. And when they would worship those gods, they would just basically worship in an orgy. Forgive my plainness, forgive my crassness this morning. And if you can't see the connection between that and Old Testament Israel and modern-day America, then you're blind. Our culture has become so sexualized. Everything, everything, it's ridiculous. And Jeremiah said we have become a people that don't even know how to blush anymore. It invades our primetime TV shows. And it's just, I mean, there's not even much left to the imagination when our children are sitting down in our houses at 9 o'clock at night and you turn on it on how to get away with murder, and we got everything imaginable going on. Everything else, it's crazy, and we've just become callous to it. and And America is in a place of declension. We desperately need revival. We need God to raise up righteous judges, and I don't just mean the Supreme Court. I mean people who can speak prophetically the word of the Lord to what we need as a people. Come on, I'm, I'm, I'm preaching way better than you're acting this morning. Give me an amen in here somewhere, somebody. Come on, encourage me a little bit. And so what I want you to see is that every one of these are in the context of a larger story. And the southern kingdom, Rehoboam leads, we have two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, and they stay true to the, to the Lord. They have some bad kings, but they have more good kings than they have bad. Those who follow after the footsteps of their father David. There never was a revival in the north. There never was where you could say, this one found the book of the law of the Lord and began to make reforms and God poured out His Spirit and, 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 and Israel was restored. There was always declension in the northern ten tribes. The two southern, they would decline, and then they would have revival. They would cry out to God and it was a cycle over and over. And finally it reached the point when God says, you remember what I told you generations ago? That if you didn't follow after me, that I would disinherit you from this land? Well, guess what? It's coming. And so God drives them out of the land in 586 BC when Nebuchadnezzar is raised up as the king of Babylon. The ten northern tribes didn't last that long. They had been overtaken by the Assyrians in 722 BC. And so everybody's going into captivity. The once great nation that walked with God, that spoke the words of God from their lips, that loved and worshipped God and His temple and the God dwelt in the house among His people and God showed up and people of the land were blessed and there was prosperity. All of that's gone. It's dried up. It's just the economy's shot, criminals all over the place. Everybody's rooting and uh, uh, rioting and bands of marauders are all over the place and nothing is in control. There is great loss of security. Why? Because there was a great loss of putting God first. When we really get to the place where we refuse to say one nation under God, our, our, our fate is sealed. Somebody help me a little bit this morning. We need, you, you, you better pray whether you like him or not or you voted for him or not, you better pray for him because God knows he needs all the help he can get. They were driven into captivity. They're in captivity 70 years and finally the 70 years comes to an end and they begin to go back. God says okay the 70 years have I've given rest to the land and now you're gonna begin to be restored. You're gonna come back out of exile. There have been several sweeping moves historically of restoration to the land. And Nehemiah is out here on the very end of Old Testament history. He's the last Old Testament book in the Bible. We have two covenants, Old Covenant New Covenant. Old Testament's 39 books, New Testament's 27. Old Testament's 39 books is broken into three sections. 17 law, 5 psalms, 17 prophets... Okay, You do know that your Bible's not in chronological order, right? You read through it and you're confused going, wait a minute, I, I, but we were just, now what, where is this coming from? When you can understand how the Bible's set up, it will begin to make sense for you. The two seventeens, like bookends on the end are both made up of a set of 5 and 12 and 5 and 12. The 5 on the front end of the Bible are the 5 books of Moses called the Pentateuch. Pentag- a pentagon is a five-sided figure. The Pentateuch are the five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then you've got 12 books of history that go from all the way from Abraham all the way up through to the end of the exile, just before Jesus is coming. So you've got Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 1 Kings, 1 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. That's at the end of the history. So Nehemiah's at the end of history. Psalms, you got... Job, Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, and then Song of Solomon. So you've got five, and then you've got 17 prophets over here, five major ones and 12 minor ones. Five major, not because they had a bigger ministry, but because they wrote bigger books. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Then you've got the 12 that everybody always goes, where now, where is that book? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And don't be amazed at that. I learned that in first grade. Because my mama, who also taught me the ABCs, said, you need to know the books of the Bible, young man. And I've been saying those for 50 years. And don't think you can't learn it. You can too. And if you do that, then you can know where stuff is. And if you understand how it's set up, then all of a sudden it starts to make sense. So Nehemiah is sitting out here and he's on the end of the exile of captivity because the people of God have broken the law for so long that God says, I've had it. I'm sending you into captivity. Captivity has been fulfilled. Seventy years are finished. They're going back into the land. Nehemiah gets a word from a friend that says, this is how bad things are. And so Nehemiah responds. And this is what I want you to see this morning in the sense of the chapter being a part of the larger story. When you read Ezra and Nehemiah, they go together because these guys actually worked together. Before Ezra got there, there was a guy by the name of Zerubbabel that God raised up to help rebuild the temple that was completely decimated. Zerubbabel doesn't finished building the temple. He only gets the foundation laid. And God sends in an Ezra after Zerubbabel dies. And so Ezra is a priestly teacher of the word and the law of God. He comes in to begin to help the people get their worship right, get God back in the right place, get the temple rebuilt. Then as he gets the temple rebuilt and they're finishing it because Ezra shows up 12 years before Nehemiah does. There's a reason for this. Because you've got to get the temple rebuilt and get God back at the center of the society and the community before you can restore security and deal with the criminals and rebuild the wall around the, the city. You've got to rebuild the temple. Now, what are you saying, Pastor? I know it's a lot of history. I'm kind of lost God will come into your life first and not worry about trying to get all the ducks on the periphery of your life straight. He'll come in and say, let's get the temple fixed first. Let me have your heart. Turn your heart toward me. Get me back in the right place. Put me first in your life. Rebuild worship and get it right. Restore right worship, right repentance. God, clean me out from the inside out. Do a Genesis week in the chaos of my life. Scrub me out, O God, and soak me in your laundry and pour out your grace and mercy upon me. When you get God right and you rebuild the temple, when he rebuilds the temple in your life, then you're ready for God to send in the Holy Spirit, Nehemiah, who's going to restore some security and restore some prosperity and rebuild the economy and deal with the criminal element. Some of you have been just, you, you go to seminars, you read books, Tony Robbins, you're motivating yourself all to pieces, and you're trying to get all your ducks right, and you're never going to get your ducks right until you get your temple built. What's the temple? temple's where the Holy Ghost is. I know it's right. Come on. God will raise up an Ezra to rebuild right worship, right place for God before He will bring in a Nehemiah. And when the temple's built, guess what? You're ready now. God, you're Lord of my life. Be Lord of my heart. It's amazing how when God comes in and changes and transforms a man's heart, no matter how jacked up, messed up, totally, indescribably a mess, if He can get into that man's heart, He will always bring new life before He renews a new lifestyle. Are you hearing me? Come many folk religiously trying to change their lifestyle and you, you always gonna come up short. You always gonna lose because ain't none of us good enough. There is no ability whatsoever in our own. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. But when His righteousness comes in and takes over on the inside of me... And he's in the right place in my heart, in my life. Then I now have the ability. It's like dropping that little pond in a pebble. It starts in that one little tiny concentric circle. But you just stand there long enough and you start to see the rolling, rippling effect to say Jesus is Lord. And it drops into your heart and it starts to begin to roll out into all of the other areas of your life. Come on, somebody put your hands together and give God some praise. My 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 my! Hallelujah! Help me, Holy Ghost. You can't rebuild society till you rebuild the temple. You can't get a new lifestyle until God gives you new life. All right, number two: discovering your seeds of destiny. Quickly, how's God wired you? Nehemiah responded to this, and he grieves. I'm going to be honest with you. We are so overwhelmed and inundated with 24-hour cable news and talking heads that analyze it. And we've come to the point where news is, news is no longer news. It's just entertainment. Neil Postman wrote a book that I read in the early 1990s called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it's so true. We've got 500 channels on cable and there's nothing to watch. What does amusement mean? Uh, Amuse means to think. Amuse means you don't do it. You don't think. Come on, when you go to amusement park, you don't go to think, do you? You go to go. No, I don't want to think. Come on, make me laugh. Let me have fun. Let me feel a little bit of fear in the haunted house, in the horror house. Give me some thrills emotionally and physically when I ride the roller coaster. You don't think. Nothing wrong with that. Go take a little break from thinking. But let me tell you, you better put your big curl panties on and you better learn how to think in this society and stop being amused to death. Because everything has become entertainment. The entertainment value of a a, a news anchor who no longer gives you the news but he gives you his or her opinion on it and they do it with a sense of humor. Because they want to keep you in and keep their ratings high. And keep everybody divided. White against black and rich against poor and Democrat against Republican. Because if they can keep us mad at each other they can control all of us. That's the most powerful thing I've said so far today right there. How's God wired you? You don't all respond the same way. Come on, we can see news of a mass murder somewhere and just maybe momentarily go, oh, that's awful, and then get up and go about our lives. Because we've seen it so much, we've become callous to it. Help me, I know what I'm talking about. What is your shape? Quickly, this came out of Rick Warren's ministry. What is your spiritual gifts? S. Your, what's in your heart? Your H? What are your abilities, your natural abilities, A? P, your personality. Are you an introvert or an extrovert? I'm kind of in between. I I need my cave time by myself, and then I love to go be around people. But after a while, my tank's empty, and I gotta go be by myself because people draw on me. Now, that's not my son. My son is a pure extrovert, he is a walking party. Literally, he is a, he, he's at one party and he's already making phone calls ahead and networking with his buddies to set up the next party that he's going to go to. That's just Drew. I, it just would wear me out. I, I, I've told him over and over, until you learn how to say no, you can't say yes to everybody and everybody, everybody he calls you because he's got a thousand friends. And all of them are just amazing you know, people, young guys, young ladies that are phenomenal. And I'm going, until you really get focused on what you're going to do with your life, you're going to have to learn how to say no to some things and he's getting it. He's 29. He's getting it, and he's blessed, and he's successful. He is the pure extrovert. It's his personality. Abby's on the other, se- other end. She just tolerates people. She doesn't want to be around any of us. <laughs> I'm serious. Put her in a room. Give her a stereo, her, a keyboard. Give her her guitar. Let her study Aretha or Mariah or Whitney or somebody, and she's in there singing and learning licks and training herself in technique, and after Hours she will emerge and grace us with about an hour of her time. That's, they're, they're extremes. It amazes me. They're extremes. And I'm here in the middle. And I'm the balanced one. I'm the right one. Come on. Come on. Be like me. I'm, I'm making a joke, okay? I'm not serious. I'm not serious. I let my children be who they are. He wears me out. She worries me. Typical creative, melancholic, you know, kind of get all into herself. Anyway, I've got chasing the rabbit. i got to stop. Who, how are you? Spiritual gifts, heart, ability, personality. How, are you an extrovert, introvert? Are you right, like Pastor Michael in between both of them? E, your experiences. Every one of us are shaped differently. What, what moves Erica is not the same thing that moves Benetria. And what moves Benetria is not the same thing that moves the man in the house with her, Pastor Donnie. And we're all, how, how do I respond to what I hear? How can I know the purpose of God for my life? How can I discover the seeds of my destiny? How can I, like a Nehemiah who was a cupbearer to the king, I, I, I have a royal position? You know, and Let me tell you what that means. That doesn't mean he's a head wine connoisseur to make sure that the king doesn't get any bad quality wine. His job is to make sure the king doesn't get any deadly wine. Now you know what that means? That means if some deadly wine crosses Nehemiah's lips in five minutes, he's going to be dead. Every day he sacrifices his life for the king. He's a cupbearer. He's not a prophet. But he gets moved. He's moved. He mourns. He weeps. He fasts because he has something in his heart. And I'm going to ask you three questions quickly. What makes you mad? What makes you sad? And what makes you glad? That's not just a cheesy preacher alliterated message, but it really is a great way to help you begin to ask the questions to discover the seeds of your destiny. Because if it brings happiness to you, if it, if it creates sadness in you, if it stirs you up and makes you angry, then probably this is how God has wired you to be able to respond to and speak to things that you have been destined to deal with in your life, in your family, and larger than that in your culture. You know, so many times in church, it's all about, oh, God, how can I get myself fixed? How can I get right? Lord, To get my finances in order. And you, go, you concentrate on that for a season. Lord, get my health right and, and, and all this. And everything's just always about me, mine, mine. God wants you finally to get a revelation that he's here to bless you and take care of you so you can be emotionally well enough, not a nut or a fruit, fruit cake. How many of you know Jesus loves... Jesus loves granola Christians too. Fruits, nuts, and flakes. And we'll love you and help you get set free. Come on. Get some emotional healing. Don't always live in the past because, y'all, I've I've been rejected. And you're still living out of it. And folk rejecting you because you just act wrong. Get healed. Let's get well. Come on, don't keep making the past an excuse for the present. And grow and and get in a place where God can use you to become a history maker and a change agent where your chapter becomes the part of a larger story of the progression of God's revealing of his kingdom. Man, I'm 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 preaching myself. There ain't no way I can take a nap this afternoon. Mercy. Are you getting anything out of this? Oh, mercy. I got help me, Lord, have mercy. Can you let go of it? What, what, what has you? Does it grip you or do you? Or is this a good idea? Because if it's just a good idea, in a week you'll move on to something else. But if it keeps you awake at night and you mourn over it and you pray and fast and you can't eat, you, you, you're going before God crying out to God, then it's something that's probably a seed for the destiny of your life. That's how vision can be birthed right there. Last point, let me finish quickly. So what do I do with this? Pastor Michael, this is a great word, man. Man, I'm ready to take on hell with a water pistol. Let's go. Glory to God. Charge of the Light Brigade. Let's go. But no, seriously, what do I do with this? A couple hours from now, this will fade. You know, you, everybody's excited. You know, you go home, maybe I get a couple of texts. Folks maybe even call say, you really spoke to me today. Okay, great. Now that something's been revealed, now that you've got a picture, what did it say? It says, those who can't see what God's doing stumble all over themselves, but those who take what's been revealed to them, they are most blessed. So what do I do with this now? What's, What's my action step? So Nehemiah saw it and then he said, he began to pray, and he prayed to the point that he took upon himself what we call identificational repentance. How do I handle the burden of the Lord? What is my response Have you seen that commercial? I think it's a Mucinex commercial where a guy's dealing with some congestion in his chest and he says when you have this congestion, he says it's like this and it shows a picture of his little boy who might weigh 25 or 30 pounds sitting down on his chest in the bed. He says when you have chest congestion, this feels like this and then they go to a picture of about a 300-pound wrestler sitting on him in the bed. That 300-pound wrestler is what the burden of the Lord feels like. A good idea is when the little 30-pound little boy sits down on you and then he gets up and moves on. The burden of the Lord is when the 300-pound wrestler sits down and you can't get away from it. You can't move. You can't budge. You don't have that vision. That vision's got you. And you can't sleep. You can't eat. You pray and you're crying out. You're going, God, how can I bring this thing into being? Maybe it's a business in some of your hearts. Maybe it's a relationship like you used to have with your husband or your wife. Maybe it's a walk with God that you've stepped away from. Maybe it's just the realization that you never have come to God in the first place, that you're far from Him. So this morning, I want you to see what preparation looks like. Let's do what Nehemiah did. He confessed. He didn't just say, God, I confess for this messed up people. But he said, God, I confess we have sinned. The only way you're going to deal with your past properly is to own it and take personal responsibility for it and say, Father, I have sinned. I turn from that and I turn to you. He identifies with the sin of his whole people. Let me just say this. I, my sister has done genealogy on all of our families, my parents, maternal and paternal, grandparents on both sides, and has searched all the way back to the late 1600s. S- whole line of preachers, some um, leaders in the American Revolutionary War. And this is the one thing she said, she said, you know what, Michael, I was really glad to find out that there was, where there was nobody in our family that owned slaves. And i kind of like, OK, well, I'm glad to know that. Because my great grandfather fought on the side of the Confederate Army. He was from Savannah, Tennessee, Church of Christ man, Love, love the Lord, part of that, pre, that movement, um, it's called the Restoration Movement, and um, he didn't fight because he was trying to defend slavery because they only owned about 40 acres, they didn't own any slaves. He fought trying to protect his property from a violent, raping, pillaging Northern Army, and that's part of history that doesn't get taught in our schools. And everybody that was on the Confederate side doesn't mean they were trying to keep slavery intact. It just meant they were just trying to keep their families protected. And and, and for a minute, I kind of thought, well, you know what? For a long time, I taught history right down here at Mid-South Community College, and so often I would have primarily a room full of African-American students. And I just said, look, I just want to tell you, let's get it out of the way right now. First of all, only less than 10% of the population even owned slaves. Get out of, the, get out of your heads that everybody had a slave because it's not the truth. Only very, very rich people. Most of them only owned one or two and it was the extremely rich who owned 10 or more and they were literally part of 3%, the top 3% of the population. Let's, let's, let's get adjusted here to how all this happens. And so for a little while I kind of had a little pride. Hey, ain't nobody in my family owned any slaves. And it's like the Lord rebuked me and he said, you know what, you you, you can be proud of that and you can let that pride in that get in your way from being able to reach the delta to help destroy the spirit of racism. Now let me tell you, we've got a society where there's been a, a white supremacist system that has held down African Americans. And the only way that we're going to be able to see true Justice, equal, created in the image of God equally. All men created equal. That's part of our founding documents that say that. And there were slave owners writing that. Is to tr- just own it. I don't have any slave owners in my family, but I have to be willing to back up and go, God, I confess we have sinned as Americans. I wasn't even alive. I didn't, but we have sinned. And I have to be willing to sit down and listen to and look to my friends, my African-American brothers and sisters who have been bought with the same blood of Jesus that saved me and listen to their struggle and let empathy arise and go, I'm here for you, I'm your brother, I will never understand it, I'm a white man as bad as I want to be black. And when I was a kid growing up with my music, now that is not patronizing, that's the truth. That's the truth, that's the honest to God truth. All of my music is black. I I can't help it. It's what I love. It's what I'm drawn to. It's how I'm wired. Okay? And as bad as I want to, I will never walk in your shoes and I won't understand. But I want you to know that I love you and I'm with you and I'm for equal treatment and equal pay and and equal rights and all of these kinds of things. And and, and let me just say this. Racism in a white supremacist system might be one-sided, but prejudice goes both ways, people. Don't shout me down now. Prejudice goes both ways. And you can be a black man sanctified for the Holy Ghost and be just eat up with prejudice against white folks thinking that we're all the same. And baby, we're not all the same. I know we all look the same to you, but we're not all the same. Okay, that's a joke. I'm already over. I promised my my children's minister that I was going to do better and I eliminated some stuff. I met with the youth guy and I said, help me shave off three things. And I did. And look here, it's already four minutes after 12. No, it's not okay because their kids need to get out of their classrooms. And I love the teachers. So let me wrap this up. What am I saying to you this morning? Until we're willing to confess it and own it, we'll just keep abiding the same nonsense. The same pathetic system. I want you to know that as long as I'm alive and there's breath in my body, my heart is here to build a congregation that will embrace diversity in this community. We want to build a bridge. There are places to build bridges, and we also want to build a wall. I'm not talking about Trump's wall either. I'm talking about the wall of the Holy Ghost, the protection. Have you got anything out of this message this morning? This is where we are right now. This is what you need to do to deal with it. You confess, you say, God, I have sinned. And you own your sin. You don't put it off on somebody else. God, my mama sinned, my daddy was a drunk. God, my brother abused me when I was growing up. Get, it out, get out of it. It's somebody else's fault. Yeah, and you're going to have to wrestle it down and learn to forgive. People have been wounded. I'm not making light of any wound that you have experienced. God help you. It breaks my heart when I sit down with people and they actually have the courage to open their hearts and share with me some of the most horrible things that they went through as children. And then I say, listen. Jesus wasn't absent when that was happening. His heart was broken. And he's here to heal you of those wounds, and those places where you're broken. But you know what? You, you, you can't get all that other stuff around you fixed until you just let the Ezra spirit of God come in and say, let's, let's build the temple. Let's get your heart right with God first. Put him in the right place of worship. Make him first in your life. Make him Lord of your heart. And then out of that, he'll begin to deal with all this other stuff, these wounds, these hurts, the lack, the pain. So this morning, lights are down. I'd like you to bow your head with me if you don't mind.